The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. As we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Apologize for my voice this morning. The early pollen is not being friendly to me, as I imagine a number of you understand. But we're continuing our sermon series in the Apostles' Creed this morning. Uh, we started this over a month ago just with the simple phrase, I believe. We talked about what, is, what are we doing when we confess the creed? What does it mean to say that I believe this? What are, we, what are we saying? What are we proclaiming? And what does the creed do for us? We said that the creed brings us balance that it helps us to, to have balance in our faith, to keep from overemphasizing one doctrine over another. It brings us clarity, clarifying and, and making precise what we believe. It brings us counsel, gives us wisdom for how we're to live, and brings us community. Because in confessing I believe, and if all of you are doing the same thing, we're confessing together these truths that we believe. So we started off with I believe, and then we went I believe in God, the Father Almighty. What does it mean that the Almighty God the, the creator, the all-sovereign, the ruler and sustainer of the world is also our father. The next week, we looked at God, creator of heaven and earth. And we said that because God is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and all-glorious over creation, you can trust him. The next week, we looked at Jesus Christ, his only son. And we talked about the uniqueness of Christ and what, it, what the Christ's relation to the father is and, and how all that works out. And then last week, we looked at Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does it mean that he's not just my Lord and your Lord, but our Lord? What does that mean for our community? And what does it look like to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? This week, we turn to the next phrase, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But before we do that, let's stand as we have every week and confess together what it is we believe. We're going to do it a little different this week. Rather than everyone saying the whole thing all together, there will be parts that are marked men. So the men should read those. Women, and the women should read those, and all, so everybody should read those. We all clear? All right. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now would you remain standing for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for this confession that we, uh, with saints throughout the ages, proclaim this morning. Father, as we, as we look at the virgin birth this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand it as far as our minds are able to, and really to see the implications of it for our life. Help us to be changed because we see the Christ child. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at the virgin birth this morning, and in doing that, we're doing a couple things uh, that have become hallmarks of this series. We've said every week we're not interested in preaching the creed, but in preaching the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to look at the virgin birth from Matthew chapter 1, following the initiative of the creed. Also, we're concerned not just with what the creed says, like the details of the word and making sure we understand the definitions of all the doctrines, but on the implications of the creed for our lives. We're, we're interested in what difference the virgin birth makes for you day to day in your Christian life, not just what it means that Christ was born of a virgin. A couple of things we need to do first, though. What are we talking about and why? I've used this phrase, virgin birth, several times now. What do we mean when we say, I believe in the virgin birth? Now, the language of the creed is very helpful for us here. It says that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And that, in short, is what we believe when we talk about the virgin birth, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ's conception was a miracle of God. The Bible, Matthew and Luke, make it clear that, that Joseph had nothing to do with this. It wasn't according to the will of man. Mary really didn't even have that much to do with it. The angel doesn't come to Mary and say, Mary, we're thinking about this plan to bring the Christ child into the world. Would you like to be the mother of God? No, Mary's informed of what has already happened inside her. Mary, you're pregnant. It's a miracle. The child is divine. It's God himself. And this is the way God always works. God initiates. God is the one who reaches into creation and creates life where there is none. Whether in yours and my hearts or in Mary's womb. It's God's initiative. This child is fully divine, but he's also fully human. The doctrine of the virgin birth says that Christ didn't appear in the world as a 30-year-old, all of a sudden preaching and teaching and doing miracles. No, he was a human embryo, and then a human fetus, and then a human baby, and an awkward human toddler, and an awkward human teenager, and then a man, a human man. You see, the virgin birth holds together for us the humanity and the divinity of Christ, that we worship a Lord who is one person with two natures. A couple of things we don't mean by the virgin birth, because when you're defining terms, it's helpful to say this is what we mean, this is not what we mean. Uh, a couple of errors that come with the virgin birth come when we turn from focusing on Jesus to focusing on Mary. So the Catholic Church historically has taught something called the Immaculate Conception, which refers not to Jesus' conception, but to Mary's. You know, they look at the person of Jesus and say, he, he's so important, he's so crucial, he's so holy that Mary must have been something special. And, and what can we say special about Mary? Well, she must have been conceived without sin. The Bible makes it clear, though, that, that Mary is a human, just like anyone else, just like you and just like me with a sin nature. 
that she was born to normal parents in normal circumstances. But that doesn't make Christ less holy because Christ's holiness comes from the fact that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, not that he's born of Mary. So we don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. And on the other side of it, after Jesus is born, we don't believe in the perpetual virginhood of Mary. We say we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, but the Bible makes clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters, that Joseph knew his wife after Jesus was born. Mary did not stay a virgin forever, nor did she need to stay a virgin forever. Both of these doctrines are distractions from the truth of the virgin birth that call us to look at Christ, to look at the child who is born, not the one who bears the child. That's what we're talking about. But again, before we dive in, I want to say why. Why are we talking about this today? We're entering into a new section of the creed that moves from kind of the the identity of these royal sovereign figures over heaven and earth and that's in between these confessions of truths at the end, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, And now, all of a sudden, we're talking about events that we can put a date on. Events that happened in a place that we could go visit. Not these eternal spiritual truths, but but real historical facts. In other religions, the life of the founder of the religion is, is really irrelevant. If you think about it for Islam or for Mormonism, it didn't have to be Muhammad or Joseph Smith that received the Quran or the Book of Mormon. It could have been anyone. That who they are is not important. It's the message that they bring. Buddhism didn't require Gautama Buddha to be the one to reach enlightenment. It could have been somebody named Bob. And we'd be talking about Bobism instead of Buddhism. The life of the founder in other religions doesn't matter. But in Christianity, it's crucial. It's absolutely essential to the faith. It, it's the deciding point of the faith. The facts of Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension matter for your salvation. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. You're without hope. If Jesus Christ has not died on a cross, you're still in your sins without hope. And we'll see this morning, if Jesus Christ is not born of a virgin, you're still in your sins and without hope. But the good news this morning is that our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin. We'll see three things about this virgin birth as we finally look at our text this morning. The announcement of a child, the shock of a child, and the importance of this child. First, the announcement of a child. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child is born according to... To a promise, and, and we're all relatively familiar with where this promise comes from. It's from Isaiah chapter 7. This is one of the fundamental proofs that Scripture is true, that prophecy gets fulfilled. But I think it'll be helpful for us to look at Isaiah 7 a little bit this morning, or at least to listen along. In Isaiah 7, when the chapter starts, God's people are in trouble. Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, is being attacked by a foreign nation and by their brothers, by their cousins, Israel, the northern kingdom. Chapter 7 opens, says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, the good guys, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, those are the bad guys, the heart of Ahaz, the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
So the situation is dire. They're terrified. They're scared because not only this foreign army is against them, but it's their own family, their own cousins, other tribes of Israel that are, are coming to attack God's people. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells Ahaz not to worry. Verse 3 continues, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Isaiah, inspired by God, goes to the king and says, It's okay. You can, you can rest. You can exhale, you can relax. God has this. They're nothing more than smoldering sticks in a fire that's been long dead. You don't have to fear these armies. And as proof of his ability to save, God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. In verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ahaz refuses. Generally, when someone asks you to put the Lord to the test, it's a good idea to say no. Unless that person is the Lord himself who says, put me to the test. Then you're allowed to say yes. Ahaz foolishly says no, but God says, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to give you a sign. As he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This child in Isaiah 7 is a sign, is proof, is a symbol of God's ability to rescue his people. The child is a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of expectation, a symbol of promise that God has not forgotten his people and that he will rescue them. And the sign gets fulfilled in the very next chapter. In chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. If anyone is expecting and trying to think of baby names, there's a good one. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I'm pretty sure it'd be unique. And the message that this child brings is one of hope, is one of salvation. There's a song in Isaiah 8 that says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Basically, the message of this child is other nations, enemies of God's people, do whatever you want. It's not going to come to anything because God is with us. This is the message of the child in this prophecy. And this is what Matthew picks up on when he says, according to the prophecy of Isaiah. Just because a prophecy is fulfilled once in Scripture doesn't mean there aren't multiple fulfillments of it. And this is what we see in Matthew chapter 1, that even though the prophecy is fulfilled in Isaiah 8, it's fulfilled in an even better way in Matthew chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child is a symbol of hope, a a proof of God's ability to save his people. But this isn't the only promise that leads us to expect a child like this. In Genesis 3.15, God tells the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be this child of Eve, this human being who's going to come someday and defeat the enemy of God's people. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, we sung about this this morning. A root 
a branch from David, stump of Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it goes on to say all these other great kingly things that this figure will do, that this son of David, this descendant of Jesse, is going to come and to rule in righteousness and in power and in truth and in justice. It's connected to, to God's promise to David that one of his sons will be on the throne forever. We have promises like this all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of expectation of a figure coming, a prophet greater than Moses, a high priest better than Joshua, a better Adam, a true Noah, a true Joseph, on and on and on. But this figure is also God himself. In Ezekiel 34, God calls out the faithless shepherds of Israel. They have terrible leadership. And, and, and God points out all of their faults and all of their flaws, that they're eating the sheep they're supposed to be protecting. But in verse 11, God says, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. I will rescue them. I will bring them out. I will feed them. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. Promises of the Old Testament Messiah weren't just about a man coming. They were about God himself coming to rescue his people. And that's the promise of Isaiah 7 that Matthew points us back to in Matthew 1. The birth of the Christ child was according to the promise of God. And if this child is going to be the significant figure, this huge presence that the Old Testament builds expectation for, it would make sense that God's going to do something to make sure everybody knows it. So his birth is accompanied with a sign. Look at Matthew 1, verse 18. The birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's not uncommon for significant figures in the Bible to have unusual birth stories. So Isaac, through whom the prophecy to Abraham and the promise to Abraham continues, is born of a barren, of, not of a barren woman, of a 90-year-old woman, to a 100-year-old father. They have no business having children, and yet here's this child. Isaac's son, Jacob, is born to a barren woman. Samuel, the prophet who puts David on the throne, is born to a barren woman. And John the Baptist, the herald of Christ himself, is born to a barren woman. But here's something completely new. Not just women who have difficulty getting pregnant, or for some reason can't get pregnant, even though everything else should point to the fact that they could be pregnant. No, a virgin, someone for whom it's impossible for them to be pregnant, all of a sudden is with child, is bearing a son. Here she is, pregnant. And the significance and the greatness of the sign point to the greatness of the person. This is what signs do. They point to something, and they're supposed to give you a sense of the character of it. So when you're driving north on I-95, after you pass 26, you see billboard after billboard after billboard for south of the border, right? You've all driven past this on 95, these cheesy, corny phrases that, that don't really make you want to go to this place. And, and then you start driving past it, and you're confirmed, I really don't want to go to this place. It's old, it's ugly, it looks run down. The sign gives you some sense of expectation of what's coming, the greatness of the sign of the virgin birth gives us an expectation about the greatness of the Christ child. It's something significant that's coming. 
So we have this announcement of a child, that it's according to the promises of God, and it's accompanied with a sign. But just because it was expected, just because Israel expected that a Messiah would come, that doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph expected that it would happen to them. This child is also a shock. And this is our second point this morning, the shock of a child. First, the surprise of his divinity. Look at verses 19 and 20. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells us that that this child almost destroys Mary and Joseph's relationship. Joseph believes that he can't trust Mary anymore, and so he resolves to divorce her quietly because he's a just and an honorable man, but to leave her because he feels like he can't trust her. Luke, giving Mary's side of the story, tells us that her reaction wasn't joy at the news that she was pregnant. It was, uh uh-uh. I mean, imagine this. Mary is having this vision, is being visited by a messenger from heaven who says, congratulations, you're going to be with child. She says, no, I'm not. Who's going to argue with the messenger from heaven? She, she can't understand, she can't come to grips with the divinity of this child. Joseph is totally unex, is unprepared for the announcement of the child's divinity. Mary is unprepared for the fact that Jesus is divine. Both of them are surprised at the divinity of Christ. And we see this throughout Christ's life as well, especially in those who come to believe in him. So we have the centurion at the foot of the cross who after Jesus dies, he feels the earthquake start to shake the earth. He says, surely this man was the son of God. If he had realized that before, there's no way he would have assisted in putting him to death. He's surprised by the fact that Jesus is divine. Peter, in his famous confession at Caesarea Philippi, where he says, Jesus is asking them, who who does this people say that I am? And what do these people think that I am? And then he turns to them and says, what do you think that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. And we tend to read that as a, he's thought about it. You know, he he talked with the other disciples. They read the Old Testament a little bit. And Jesus, we've come to the conclusion that you are the Christ, that you're divine. No, it's a lightning bolt of inspiration, of realization. Jesus says, Peter, who do you think that I am? And Peter, you're the Christ. It's a surprise that Jesus is divine. All throughout the Bible, we see this. And still, people seem to be surprised to find that Christ is divine. It's no different today. Because isn't this one of the key objections against Christianity? People are happy for us to talk about Jesus as long as we talk about him as a moral teacher or a wise philosopher or a selfless example. But God himself? Come on, that that kind of thing doesn't happen. But think back to your conversion. When you come to recognize that the man, Jesus, is also the divine Son of God, everything else about his life falls into place. All of a sudden, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the ascension aren't issues anymore. Because if he's God, if he's the creator coming into creation, it makes sense that that would be some kind of miracle by which he comes into the world and by which he leaves the world. The miracles themselves stop troubling us. You know, we don't have to come up with naturalistic explanations of how Jesus was able to heal, to raise from the dead, to walk on water, still storms, feed people. If he's God walking on earth, we should expect some miracles. We should be surprised that there aren't more miracles around Jesus if he's God. 
And finally, the wisdom of his teaching. Have you ever considered this? If Jesus is not God, he's the illegitimate son of lower-income trades workers. He has no business giving sermons like the Sermon on the Mount, giving wisdom to scribes and Pharisees like he does. Where does this come from if he's only human? But if Jesus is divine, it's the wisdom of God. When we embrace the divinity of the Christ child, our difficulties with the rest of his life fall away. This has implications for your evangelism. You see, we tend to to share the gospel with people, to evangelize as if they've kind of already been Christians for two or three years. So so we say things like, you got to stop drinking so much. You, know, you got to stop being so prideful. You got to stop being so angry. You need to leave your same-sex partner. Whatever it is, you need to do these things in order to become a Christian. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of breath. Because you're trying to get a non-believer to come around to a Christian way of thinking that is decidedly countercultural, all without having the most important question settled. Who is Jesus? This is the question that we push to in our evangelism. Who is Jesus? If you're here this morning considering the claims of Christ, maybe you're wondering what this church teaches about politics or homosexuality or divorce or the Bible. Those are important questions. They're not the main question. The main question is who is Jesus? If he's just a man, then you can get up and leave because nothing we're doing here matters. But if he's God, you have some thinking to do. You have some praying to do. You have some worshiping to do. Jesus Christ is divine, and that's surprising. But it's not the only surprise. It's not the only shock here. We also have the scandal of Jesus' humanity. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus comes home. You know, he, he goes out, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, and he comes back to his hometown. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his Mary called, mother called Mary? And, and aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas with us? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Do you hear the crowd's complaint? Someone with this wisdom and with this power He's too human. We know his parents. This can't be right. This can't be the man that we're talking about. And they take offense at him. Do you remember the complaint of the scribes and Pharisees? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He's too much like us, or for the scribes and Pharisees. He's too much like everybody else. He's too much like the common man. He's too human. The scandal of Christ's humanity caused some in the early church to teach that Jesus Christ didn't actually come in the flesh. He only appeared to be in the flesh. This is a view, a heresy called docetism. And 1 John in chapter 4 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there are two options. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. One is from God, one is from the devil. But John wouldn't have to say something like this if they weren't tempted to believe that Jesus Christ wasn't fully human, that there was something about him that was held back from being fully human. Where non-believers struggle with the divinity of Christ, 
I believe that we in the church struggle with the full humanity of Jesus Christ. I believe it's a struggle for us to wrap our brains around this. And it's natural because we know him as the ascended Lord of heaven and earth. We know him as seated at the right hand of God the Father. We worship him in our songs. And that seems like a little much for a mere man. But I really believe we struggle with the humanity of Christ. You know, our, our Christmas carols reflect this. And in the song Away in the Manger, there's this line, The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Guys, babies cry. A lot, actually. And Jesus was a human baby, and he cried. This really got driven home for me uh, at our Christmas Eve services here. I don't know how many of you were able to join us, but we had two. And before we started the Christmas Eve service, we watched a video of these cute kids narrating the Christmas story and the adults acting it out, right? So, so the adults are dressed up as shepherds going to Bethlehem, and the wise men bring him gold and Frankenstein and myrrh. And it, it's cute because the little kids are stumbling over their words, and they call Frankenstein's Frankenstein, and that's funny and adorable. Uh, and everyone's laughing, and it's a wonderful time until one little troublemaker says... They're talking about the stable. He says, I think he probably used the bathroom because the room was very smelly. And where there had been laughter and joking and people elbowing each other and saying, isn't this funny? All of a sudden, it was really awkwardly quiet because a little boy had talked about Jesus using the bathroom. And that sounds, that feels sacrilegious to us. But it is crucial for us to believe that Jesus was fully human that he got tired and needed to sleep, that he got splinters in his dad's workshop and skinned his knees, that he loved talking with his friends and laughing with his family, that he was grieved at suffering, and yes, that Jesus Christ had dirty diapers. It's absolutely essential to your salvation. Much is at stake if we give up, if we forget the full humanity of Christ. And this leads us to our last point this morning, the importance of a child. Why does it matter that Christ is fully human and that he's fully divine? First, it matters because Christ came to stand in your place. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus had to become man to stand in our place. You see, we need a representative. Because we had a representative in Adam... Adam, as our representative, as our first parent in the garden, failed the covenant. And so he cast all mankind into sin and misery. All mankind was under a curse because Adam, our representative, failed. So we needed a new representative. But when you elect a representative, you elect someone like you. Or when a representative is appointed, one is appointed who is like you. So we elect city council members from our district. We elect senators from our state. If we were to elect someone to go stand before city council and represent our church, it would be someone in this room, not a random stranger out on the street. Representatives must be like the ones they represent. It's no different in our redemption. Our representative, Jesus Christ, had to be fully man to stand in our place. As the author of Hebrews tells us, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It has to be a man, to take away our sins. Jesus Christ had to be man to stand in our place. But more than that, he also had to be fully God to stand in our place. 
There are plenty of misunderstandings about the cross these days, the most common of which is that the cross is a symbol of our need to be self-sacrificial, our need to give up our our wants, our desires for the good of other people, and, and that Jesus Christ is giving us the greatest example of this that we might follow after that. If that's all that the Christ does, we are not saved. Because what Jesus Christ did on the cross was bear the wrath of God that was against us for our sins. Sins committed against a holy and eternal and infinite God. And no mere man, no mere finite man can bear that infinite weight of wrath. It has to be God himself, an infinite eternal God to bear an infinite eternal wrath. If our representative were not God, wrath still remains for us, and we're without hope. Finally, Jesus had to be sinless to stand in our place. When the angel visits Mary in Luke chapter 2, chapter 1 rather, he tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Because Jesus Christ is born of the Holy Spirit, he's perfect. He's sinless, and he continues sinless throughout his entire life. And this is important because if Jesus had sins of his own to pay for, he couldn't pay for ours. Imagine that you're, let's pick a big number, a million dollars in debt. You've taken out a loan of a million dollars from the bank, haven't been able to pay any of it back, and they call you in, you go into the office, and they say, we need our money. You know, we've given you enough time, we really need our money now. And you're despondent because you have no ability to pay. And then I walk into the office and I say, look, I'll take care of his debt. And the banker looks at me and says, well, are you able to do that? I said, well, no, I owe you a million dollars too. The banker's going to be like, get out of here. You, You have no authority here. You can't do anything for yourself, much less this other man. Debtors can't pay other people's debts. It takes one who is perfect, one who is sinless, One who has no sins to pay for, to pay for the sins of others. If Jesus Christ was not sinless, was not born of the Holy Spirit, then we are not covered by his blood. But I have good news. Jesus Christ, our representative, our great high priest, was all three of these things. Fully God, bearing the wrath of God. Fully man, representing us before the Father and fully sinless, giving the power of his blood to us because he didn't need it. He is able to stand in your place. And it gets even better. This human and divine Jesus Christ right now is interceding for you before the Father. The author of Hebrews tells us that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ, as the God-man, is right now praying for you as someone who knows what it is to be you. Have you ever had the experience of someone sharing something difficult with you and coming to you for counsel and advice, and you just have no idea, no interaction with it whatsoever? So someone comes to you and says, we're really struggling with our kids. They're they're rebellious. I think one of them might be addicted to drugs. Like, there's all these problems with my children. And you say, yeah, one of our sons was thinking about going to a secular university for a while. He have no idea what they're going through. Or someone comes to you and says, we've been trying for three years to get pregnant, and we just can't. And it's hard, and we think about it every single 
day. And you say, yeah, we had to try five months before we had our third child. Like, just walk away. Don't even try and comfort someone in that kind of pain that you can't understand. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not unempathetic. He knows perfectly what it is to be human. For he's fully human. He's truly human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to experience loss. He knows what it is to be tempted by sin. He knows better than any of us what it is to be tempted by sin. Because for us, temptation has a stopping point. Because we eventually, usually give in and do the sin that we've been tempted to do. But Christ never gave in. The temptation never lightened. He knows what it is to be human. And he's interceding for you and for me before the Father right now. The virgin birth is important because it's essential for Christ standing in our place. and For Christ kneeling before the Father on our behalf. The virgin birth matters for your Christian life. As I was trying to think of our final application this morning, the the kind of take-home point that you walk away fresh in your minds with, um, the the things that we've already talked about came to mind. Evangelism, the comfort that we take from Christ being our advocate, praying before the Father, the confidence that we have. But this passage from Hebrews chapter 10 kept coming back to me. uh, And I think he says it better than I could, so I'll conclude by reading chapter, chapter 10 of Hebrews. Not the whole thing, don't worry. Jesus Christ, the child conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, is your great high priest. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what that means in our day-to-day lives. Since then we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we consider the miracle of the virgin birth, the the surprise of it for those involved, the shock of it, the Even in the midst of all the expectation they had, Father, we admit that we're stunned and we're silenced in awe of the fact that you would leave the glories of heaven to take on flesh, to stand in our place. Father, we thank you for sending Christ to do that for us. Father, we pray that as we go from here, considering him, considering the Christ child, considering the virgin birth, Father, that you would help us to draw near with the full assurance of faith that you would help us to hold fast our confession, that you would help us to encourage one another. Father, help us to see Christ this morning and seeing him rejoice and worship. Through this we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.